Welcome to the smartest doctor in the room with your host, Dr. Dean Mitchell, interviewing the leading doctors in the country to get insights into the best medical treatments available today. Not everyone has access to the best specialists, but you can advocate for yourself and learn the right questions to ask your doctor and the best possible treatment options. Remember, what you know can make a difference in your health care. Welcome to the smartest doctor in the room. I'm your host, Dr. Dean Mitchell. If you are not interested in alternative ways to get healthier, please go back to my previous podcast on hypertension where I had a really good discussion with the Dr. Sam Mann on different medications for hypertension. And also previously we talked about sublingual allergy food drops to reverse severe dangerous food allergies. But if you are interested in the most interesting holistic healing methods possibly you've ever heard of, then you are tuned into the right podcast. This is going by phone today, and my guest today is Dr. Linda Lancaster, who is a naturopathic and homeopathic doctor who has spent her entire career culling the different forms of holistic medicine and how they relate to energy and healing. Her recent book, Harmonic Healing, goes into great depth to explain these treatments. She has been instrumental in the growth of the GMIF Foundation that supports the work of healers and in educating the public on its benefits. Her support for healing work has been noted by famous celebrities such as Robert Redford of Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, if people remember that, and in more recent times, Gwyneth Paltrow, the founder of Goop. It's with that introduction, it's my great pleasure to welcome Dr. Linda Lancaster to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you so much. I love having questions. Well, we're going to be doing a lot of that, Linda, because I, I have so many people, I'm sure, who are tuning in who we're going to try to work together to make them understand the very interesting work that you do. You know, what I wanted to start with, and then I'll get to my first question, is in your book, you lay out the five principles of healing. And I'm just going to go through those for a minute and then. We're going to, if it's okay, go into something in depth. The first one you mentioned in the book is that the body has an innate ability to heal through vital force and energy that we are born with, which I think a lot of listeners could, you know, comprehend that. The second is about electromagnetic fields that you mentioned can either strengthen or weaken our energy. And we'll go into depth because unfortunately, or fortunately with today's devices, there's a lot of reasons why this electromagnetic fields you know, can be affect our health. The third thing you mentioned is that if a biological environment in our cells is weak from stress or an infection, parasites can take over and become the root cause of disease, which I think is incomprehensible to a lot of people. It's incomprehensible to a lot of doctors. Myself, I find a lot of it makes sense. And again, we'll touch on that. The fourth is conversely, when parasites are neutralized, Digestion can repair and the vital force can flow. And the fifth and final thing you mentioned in this principles of healing is that when the vital force becomes strong again, the disease process can begin to resolve. So my first question for you is, how do you explain to our listeners in layman terms the vital force? Well, it's the energy. But that energy word gets thrown out a lot, gets thrown around a lot. There is an etheric force that intermingles with our physical body. 
So our physical body has only organs and bones and, you know, it has our structure. So our structure is not alive without this etheric energy force. When, it, when that force, that etheric energy comes in, it is our personal vital force. But it comes from the ethers. And the etheric field or the energy of anything that is alive has a energy field that we call subtle energy. The vital force is our personal energy from subtle energy. Okay. So let me try to clarify this because I... I think I know where you're going with this. It's, you know, they say a lot of times, too, that people that eat a plant-based diet because vegetables and fruits have a vital force or energy within them, which can be then Correct. transmitted to us. Is that, is that right? Yeah. I mean, obviously, you know, somebody eats a, a Ritz cracker, there probably can't be too much vital force in that. But somebody eating, no. obviously, good vegetables, you know, green vegetables, all the different colors, are they getting the different vital force from those vegetables, which then can translate into their own vital force and energy? Is that a fair, you know, example? Dr. Dean, you have it perfectly right. Well, I've thought about this a lot because, again, you know, you know, what I want to tell the listeners again, too, I, in the last 20, 25 years of my practice, I have straddled between conventional medicine, you know, did all the immunology, infectious disease training, and with my wife and I, who's also a physician in my practice, Dr. Ricky Mitchell, we have explored the holistic healers over 20 years. I visited 20 years ago Dean Ornish, I visited with John Kabat-Zinn, you know, these really well-known, established people in with vegetarian diets and meditation, all, and very interesting things. And, you know, in meeting you, Linda, I really again, feel that you sort of synthesize so many of these healing principles, but it it takes a lot of faith and open-mindedness for someone that's not familiar with this. And that's what I'm really hoping that we're going to break that little barrier today uh, and then realize that, you know, yes, there are great things about modern medicine, especially for acute situations, emergency situations, God forbid someone needs a transplant. I mean, it's miraculous. But on another level, some of these ancient healing processes, which have been around for millennium, are important, and we've forgotten how to utilize them. So, okay, so I want to touch on the vital force, and I, I hopefully, you know, with that example, some, you know, some of our listeners are understanding that. The next thing I want to get to, which is frightening a little bit, is this whole idea of electromagnetic fields. How would you explain that to, again, how you explain it to your patients that you see? Well... Every cell in our body has a positive and a negative flow. So really, we are little batteries. We have an electrical flow around us. And that electrical flow is electromagnetic. So there's an energy field. You know, yeah, I want to bring up to the listeners too. So again, sometimes some people hear this and they're thinking, whoa, Oh, you know what I heard the other day? I, I, was, I couldn't wait to use this in our podcast today. This was not from a doctor, but it was actually from a, uh, another, like a spiritual person. I won't say a spiritual healer. But he, was, he brought up something very interesting. You know, when MRI machines, 
you know, which we all now take for granted. They're all over the place and they can basically see into the body. What they essentially do is measure the, I guess, the electrical field around the water molecules in our body. And, yes. Right? So I, I couldn't wait to use this today. And I, right, so um, our listeners can relate to an MRI. Oh, my neck hurts. I, I get an MRI, you know, and oh, it shows a disc or it doesn't. But if you really think about what you've just said, that we are, we, we tend to think of ourselves as hormonal, chemical, you know, bodies, but we're really, and even on a higher level, electromagnetic bodies. And, and we also all know that from the heart. The heart, if, you know, it goes out of rhythm or it stops, your electrical activity, you know, stops and you will die. <laughs> it's just that simple. So I want people listening to extrapolate that and realize that what you're saying, it's interesting that we have this electromagnetic, you know, essentially field within our body. And as well, which I was going to get to the, the slightly depressing part, is that all of the new electronic devices and Wi-Fi and everything, cell towers have an effect on our personal electromagnetic space, as you will. Is, is that how you would explain yes, it? Yes, I, I would say it exactly that way. Okay. Because this subtle energy field that we have, the, our only protection is to strengthen that field because we are getting bombarded with energies that are affecting our energy field. So... I know there's been a lot of controversy, but I think the public, you know, is semi-distrustful of, you know, big companies. So, I mean, people that live near cell towers or, you know, when you see these epidemiological studies that show sometimes people who live near these cell towers or areas of high electromagnetic radiation more prone to getting cancers and, and other diseases. Well, those scientific reports have already been shown, you know. Mm -hmm. I mean, I lost a a very dear friend, Elizabeth Rauscher, who originally was the physicist who explained all this. I mean, just as also a very practical point, I I tell my my grown kids this all the time, and I I tell patients, you know, sometimes a patient comes into my office, and obviously they all have a cell phone, and then they go to lay down, and I go to examine them, and they'll they'll leave their cell phone on their stomach. (laughs) And I'll say, please take that off. And because you know, you know, it is essentially it is putting something that's you know absorbing these these energies from the you know electromagnetic rays and everything from the uh, environment to make this amazing device we call a cell phone, but putting it close to your body. I think even also Dr. Oz had a show once. It was kind of startling and I, I don't think so dramatic, but that there were some of these cases of young women who developed breast cancer, who it was kind of scary where were keeping the cell phone under their bra strap. Uh, it was a crazy thing. And uh, so, again, I'm just pointing this out so that people get an idea of what we're talking about, you know, with electromagnetic fields and how it can potentially, you know, really have a very adverse effect and weaken your energy and your own immunity. Basically, it has the ability, if our etheric field, if our electromagnetic energy that's fed by the etheric field, through food, by the way, through food, as well as finding some very simple ways to neutralize, you know, we're not going to change what is. So from my point of view, the only way that we can deal with this is to actually strengthen this electromagnetic energy, strengthen our field, 
So we gradually, we gradually tolerate. Thanks a lot. Because there's, there's going to be more to come. Right, Technology right, We're not, not, right. They're not turning back. You know, once once you let the genie out of the bottle, it's not changing. Not changing. I chose to write a book, not we to fight, but to find a peaceful way to deal with it. Right. Well, I think it's a great point. You know, the next part, again, also really eye-opening. I mean, it, it took me some time to get my head around this, but not even just with you, Dr. Linda, but with some other healers that I deal with, really opened my eyes to this next one in that what you said, a biological environment when our cells are weak, for example, from these electromagnetic fields or from severe stress, which I see all the time in so many of my patients in New York, very stressful place, or from a severe infection, that parasites can take over and become the root of disease. And I know that when people hear the word parasites, as you mentioned in the book, they think of those big tapeworms or hookworms that, uh, you know, you would see in African countries or, you know, poverty-stricken areas. But I think you go on to make a really interesting case that there are other forms of parasites that we don't really typically think of, such as amoeba, giardia, which some patients, you know, some listeners may have heard of, candida, which I see all the time in my practice. And you even categorize, which some, again, microbiologists would dispute you, but you... Again, I, you have a broader definition of parasites, you know, that viruses such as Epstein-Barr and herpes and bacterium, even like Lyme disease, are parasites. So could you give us a little more of your thoughts on why you well, see this as parasites? Yes, the the given definition of spirochete is that it is a bacterium. Right. But I don't believe that. I believe that it's actually a microscopic parasite like a filaria or an amoeba. Uh, so I, I put it in one categorization of microscopic parasites. Bacteria has a job on its own. It doesn't need the spirochetes. That bacteria is staph and strep and infection, high infection. Worse. We're getting worse bacteria now. But if we look at it this way and we look at it through the five elements, then we can find the, the treatment for it. So I want to clarify this, and I'll tell you my perspective. The, so what you're saying is a lot of us don't even realize we have parasites living within us. And especially when our immune system is weakened, these parasites essentially come to the forefront and start affecting our health. Yes, and they have a connection to certain elements in the body. Okay, we're going to get into that. I want to explain also to the listeners something fascinating, again, where I'm trying to make all these connections. When I trained in the late 1980s and early 1990s, I think I mentioned this before a few times on the podcast, I trained in the height of the AIDS epidemic in New York City, and it was a very frightening time. I probably saw in those five years of training more than some people would see in a lifetime. And unfortunately, AIDS by the the virus, HIV, that essentially breaks down the immune system, that I saw all of these, what they call opportunistic infections in so many of these young patients that typically would never have anything like this. And the point I wanted to make was specific infections, such as something called, for example, toxoplasmosis, in the brain, 
Again, something you'd almost never see unless somebody, you know, again, traveled to uh, an African country. But, you know, a lot of these patients had never even left New York. I saw patients with rampant candidiasis from their mouth through their throat, you know, through the gastrointestinal system. And I remember I kept on wondering, and cryptosporidium causing meningitis. And I kept on thinking to myself, and amoeba. I was like, where are these patients getting these infections from? They, they, they're not traveled anywhere. Most of They've just been in New York their whole life. And I think I start to finally realize that these last few years, and then again with your work, that we all harbor these parasites in us, probably you know, at a certain level, that it's just kept in check by our immune system. And then once we under severe stress, severe other co-infection, this comes to the surface. Is, is that how you see it? Yes, I do. You do? Very. I, I was there with you in, in, in those times of HIV. That's when I started. And I was always fascinated about the many levels that you would find of different kinds of, uh, let's call them culprits. So you think also things like such as amoeba, which we can't typically see, you think these get underdiagnosed. There's actually a a very well-known doctor here in New York who sees a lot of patients, and he had a lot of very interesting training through the different world wars. He was overseas with parasites, and he diagnoses it a lot in patients. And Yeah, intimate amoeba histolytica. Right. And yeah. I, you know, again, and he puts them on anti-parasitic medications and these patients do better. So tell me a little bit about, is there certain ways that you diagnose it? Because again, it, it, obviously we can do stool cultures, but it, a lot of times it won't show anything. How do you assess if you think someone is suffering with a parasitic infection? Well, let I, I find the resonance of the parasite. Okay. I find the resonance. I go down charts. Okay. And every word has a resonance, including entamoeba histolytica, focused when on the energy field of the person. Okay. So this is called medical radiesthesia, reading energy fields, and that's what I do. However, there are now all these scanners that read energy fields. Just like they, just like an MRI. Is it a, is it an instrument? You said it's not an instrument. It's a, a, they realize that these resonances of parasites can resonate with with the fields of the human field. Okay. And so they have there are computer programs like this that you can find that. I'm a relic. I I measure energy. You know. I started out as a homeopath, as a naturopath, and I believed in holistic medicine. I believed in nutrition. I believed that food heals. But there's a lot of things in the way. And I always hear, well, I I eat so well. How come I have parasites? Uh, It's just part of our uh, biome. It's just part of us. And... If we balance the pH or the electromagnetic field, let's call it electromagnetic field, these different types of parasites or interferences will not have a place to grow in. 
So sometimes you need to clear the field by doing a parasite cleanse. Some doctors use an an anti-parasitic drug. I come from the natural world, so I use herbs. I use herbs for clearing that out. Okay. We're going to talk about that because we're almost going to bridge to your cleanses, which I know a lot of listeners want to hear about. Let me ask you one other thing before we get to another thing about weakening the immune system. And we hear a lot about it today is the heavy metals. Where do we have to worry about getting the heavy metals? Is it from the fish? Is it from the grains? Is it from all the foods? Everywhere. Everywhere. It's from the sky. It's from the atmosphere. And why is it different now than it was maybe 50, 100 years ago? Why... Why are, you know, the, and when you talk about heavy metals... chemicals in the air, there's a lot of radiation in the air. Give me examples of what you would consider heavy metals that are, I mean, arsenic, lead. Well, I, look at aluminum. There's a lot of aluminum in the air. It's in the air, okay. Nanoparticles of aluminum in the air. Okay. From the latest studies. There's aluminum in our food. If we eat out, many restaurants still use aluminum. You're talking about with cooking? Yes. Okay, so you're saying like aluminum foil or whatever, that is probably Aluminum pans when sauteing, yes. And you think there's a relation? I know they brought up before about with Parkinson's. You think in other conditions, neurological conditions, this is an issue? It's a very much of an issue because the nature of aluminum is drying. In fact, that's why it's put into deodorant. Aluminum dry, it's an antiperspirant. It stops because it's a drying agent. I know. It's very hard to be a holistic patient. <laughs> you have to go back to glass bottles yeah. and uh, uh, iron and uh, pans. it's very hard to be a holistic doctor to be able to look at all these things. Well, right. I mean, it's almost like you really got to do a house call on patients to see what they're eating and how they're preparing things. And, uh, you know, it's... Well, it's information's in the book, you know, do you? Yeah. The information's in the book. Really, they read it, and it's 40 years of experience of seeing what interferes with the electromagnetic electromagnetic energy at a cell level. Yeah. No, it's it's fascinating, really. All right, let's get to some of your cleanses. You're famous for these. You know that I was at that GMFI... GMIF GFIM yes. dinner last year, which was beautiful. It was really a special event. And I was sitting next to someone who started telling me how the milk cleanse made a huge difference. And he was had been suffering from Lyme disease and he'd been on antibiotics and he was a mess. I mean, he was bed bound essentially. So tell me about your eight day milk cleanse. You know, typically you think of milk or dairy as bad. We know it's not great for Canada. Why is this different, and how does a patient do the milk cleanse? Well, first of all, we're not going to call milk a bad food. Okay. If you can get good milk. Okay. And what's good milk? Mean no, non, no, no, no hormones, no antibiotics to the cows. Right. Especially goat milk. I weaned my children from nursing to goat milk, and then now it's not something you eat every day or drink every day. But we use it in, in our house. But the milk cleanse, I'm veering off, off the subject for a minute. The milk cleanse is something that, I've been u- that I have used for almost 40 years when I find parasites. Actually, not all parasites. I don't use it for a candida program. I don't use it for bacteria. I don't necessarily use it for virus. I use it for microscopic, which is for amoeba, 
and giardia and spirochete. Well, that's the lime, right? And, okay, so that's important. Because again, yeah. lime, lime is such a epidemic, and it's only getting worse. And people are very frustrated. I had a whole podcast with an acupuncturist, Chinese healer. You know, and his success is Dr. Zhang, actually, a very interesting man, on his treatments of you know with Chinese medicine, traditional Chinese medicine to treat Lyme. Lyme is just really tough. So explain to me again, yeah, so what do you have patients do who are going to do a milk cleanse? Do they have to prepare for it? Do they just drink milk for eight Not days? Not really, because it is a whole food. Okay. So every two hours, they drink a glass. I prefer raw goat's milk, but organic milk at least. Every two hours? Every, every two hours, wow. you drink a glass of milk with the worm formula. I hesitate because our we are not up and running to to give the formula, but I can tell you something that's very important here, that the milk draws the worms out. Right, you've mentioned that in the book, right, so I thought that was interesting. Like I think you used to say they used to do like milk baths too. Was that right? I mean, in ancient times. But that or? was in the, in kind of old Italian days okay. and old biblical days. Okay. They would actually drink milk for for a week and then go sit in a tub of tub of milk and the worms would crawl out. Wow. I know. So they so. love milk. So that's why I think a lot of people who feel they are allergic to milk because they get symptoms. I really feel that it's coming from the fact that they are they have parasites in their symptom in their systems, so the parasites are getting activated and agitated. Makes sense. Uh, as I said, I've dealt with other healers too who do feel strongly that the parasites are essentially pulling energy from the you know from the person, and that's why a lot of times also they're developing rashes and their energy is down or their skin is dry. So I I do find there's there could be some connection there. Do use we use a we use a formula which is a mixture of antiparasitic herbs and we use a formula that we take two capsules of the antiparasitic and drink it with the milk every two hours for eight days no other food just milk and people say they have plenty of energy I always have so it's not even just a milk cleanse energy. it's just milk all day long I mean there's no other food you don't eat anything Diet. wow. It's milk diet. Milk diet. For eight days. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Many people have done the program and many people have gotten good results. There are other methods of clearing parasites. The fact that we understand that it's possible. If it's too much to do a milk cleanse, find other ways. Keep searching. Because I have never seen people healthy when they have parasites. Yeah, you know, it's interesting too. Dr. Zhang brought up this point about with garlic and he and he would tell you know in the podcast that you have to have the real garlic he says it does smell he says if it doesn't smell it doesn't work i'm in total agreement with him yeah he's a really fascinating guy too you know let's talk about the liver cleanse we'll, we'll move on a little bit and it's i think it's a big part of your book and you know you say in your book the liver is the most important detoxification organ in the body and i know again it's essentially the filter which cleans our blood. So explain to the listeners, if you wouldn't mind, essentially uh, some components of your liver cleansing program. Well, we need to understand that the liver does many things. It processes our food and also processes our emotions and our thoughts. 
So the liver is very connected to our sort of our mental thoughts and our emotional fields. So we want that liver to, to be doing a good job. Otherwise, we start to get angry and the gallbladder gets all congested and even forms gallstones. So in the cleaning of the liver, I like to use citrus. I like to use grapefruit and lemon and olive oil and make a drink in the morning. Not a, not a smoothie with the kitchen sink in it, but a very precise drink that will help to flush your liver. Now, I've heard this before, so that's why, again, I, when I hear things a couple of times from a couple of different people that I really respect, I think there's something to it. So I have heard about this, quote, liver drink before, especially the olive oil and, like, lemon juice, which, again, clearing out the bile. Which I, so, again, I find that, you know, fascinating. And, you know, you mentioned that's, like, one of the first things in your liver cleansing program is, is the green liver drink, which you can spice up a little bit. You mentioned with some cucumber and celery. Green liver drink? And you can use the grapefruit or orange mm-hmm. lemon drink. So if there's a lot of acid in the system and, they, and someone doesn't feel good with uh, a grapefruit as first thing in the morning, then go to the apple liver green drink. Okay. That's correct. Yeah. yeah. But we use olive oil, yes. You have different choices for the, uh, the listeners. You don't have to... Uh... <laughs> go into it really clearly on that that so what do we do we've we've been uh, sleeping all all night we wake up in the morning so the first thing that the liver and gallbladder is going to receive to receive is the olive oil and the citrus so it's going to do some flushing then you can have a cup of hot something hot after I recommend an herbal tea but my my New Yorkers like to grab a coffee and go. Oh, we love our coffee. That's why we're so manic here. <laughs> you don't just shove it down. You know, you, it's a little on the thick side, and you kind of drink it and chew it and taste the fruit. We put ginger in it as well. Yeah, ginger's great for everything. Yeah, you know, these are all my mainstays with my patients. You know, I, they, I, I keep it up. I'm sure like you do too. I keep it in my office so the patients see that you know i think this is really important you know to do and that and how important you know some of the basic dietary things you can do make a difference i want to bring up one other interesting thing too because sometimes again it could be very hard for people to get this around their head but you know about the liver being an organ of emotion and again in ancient times this was very much believed and you know again almost like personalities you know if you had like a if you were a type of like bitter, jealous person, your liver would be, you know, be the one that taking on, you know, all the uh, the damage and inflammation. But I wanted just our listeners to listen, to know something fascinating. I remember reading this in the New England Journal of Medicine. There was a case where a patient had a liver transplant, and you know, fortunately, it saved the person's life. I think they had some type of cirrhosis. But what was fascinating was after the the transplant within a few weeks, the patient was requesting beer, and the patient never drank beer or alcohol before. He was rec- he was craving I can't remember it was McDonald's or something, and the family thought he was it was just so strange, and yet there have been reports of this in other type of transplants where sometimes someone's craving they oh they found out that the donor was a big beer drinker. 
You know, I mean, crazy stuff like this. So I, I just want the listeners to appreciate it's more than just plumbing, this whole idea of medicine. You know, you, you, you place body parts, you do this. There is something at a deeper level. And I, again, I think, I think we're circling back to that vital force, you know, or immune memory, I mean, that, that makes this all not seem crazy. So let's go to the other thing you mentioned, too, which I find interesting. You call the liver clock, you know, the timing of eating, that you said the liver should be quiet, if possible, after like three o'clock or so? Yes. And then the other way uh, around. Our best digestion happens to be early in the day, early in the day. I mean, when we should be having the best. I mean, that's how it used to be. In uh, Europe are serving hot meals, good hot meals. You know, we, we just kind of grab something. So we want to do our protein at that time. During when? The protein when? In the, mor- in the morning? Protein in the morning and then lunchtime, really okay. lunchtime. Okay. You also are against, especially in the beginning in your liver cleanse, nuts and seeds. And, you know, of course, people are hungry, you know, so nuts are filling. We tend to hear that there's a lot of good qualities about them. You just think it's too hard on the liver in the beginning like when you, you start this liver cleanse? That's exactly. I, I think that's exactly true. I think people have been eating nuts like it's popcorn, and that needs to be changed. So I take people off nuts, and then when they're on maintenance, eat nuts in a more moderate way. Oh, I'm not going to let you come over to my house. I love eating nuts. <laughs> I understand, but it's a concentrated protein. I know. It's I know. We forget. Yeah. I mean, yeah, we forget how. Hard to digest. Well, because what people you know, forget, you know, what people forget, and it's similar to what you're saying, when I sometimes say to people, what's the healthiest way to eat? I say, I call it the biblical diet. If it was around the biblical times, you know, they had to basically forage and go around, you know, scrounge around for food. They weren't, you know, just getting a, a whole big bag of nuts or berries. You know, they were lucky if they found a few on the ground, and, uh, and that got them through till the next meal. So it's a result of modern-day living. Yeah, you know, I, I in the book I talk about vegetarian as well as eating meat. And um, that's not the choice here because we're cleaning the liver. But I can tell you this. If someone is very low and they're rebuilding their health, adding meat or protein that's already been formed in the form of protein is sometimes necessary to rebuild the endocrine glands. Yeah, I, I agree with you that, you know, I, and I tell my patients this story because, you know, a certain percentage of my patients are vegetarian. And I told them the story how I was, after visiting Dean Ornish in 1994, I came back and I was a strict vegetarian for about four years and I got really sick. I might, you know, I guess for the stresses of private practice and, you know, living in New York, my vitamins, minerals. Look got, at yeah. what is your environment? Are you sitting in a on a beach in Hawaii and eating fruit off the trees and you know and doing a lot of meditation? No, you don't need a lot of protein. But the kind of schedules that most of us handle, we need more. You need the protein. You're right. Or we need to have our digestion working perfectly that when you chew that rice and you it dige- and you're digesting the beans that you are digesting them properly 
and that then that's okay. That's okay. But that takes effort. It doesn't take a gluten-free muffin and um, uh, a fake cheese. So that's why I talk about the liver cleansing because, and I do two choices. Even beyond the food, we have to clean up, you know, we need to clean up the heavy metals because our, our cellular function is very low from heavy metals. We are bombarded with it. And how do you say so, to clean that up? Or what, what is your, you know... Oh, the bath. You know, I recommend the bath. I was about to just get to that. Oh, you see, you brought me right to that. So let's just... I want to hear your thoughts about the therapeutic baths. You mentioned the Clorox bath, the sea salt and baking soda bath. The baths are what can help neutralize these heavy metals and the radiation and the chemicals? Yes. And they're cheap. Right. Yeah. And everybody can do them as long as they have a bathtub. And I know in New York there are many uh, people who do not have bathtubs. They've chosen to put in these fancy showers, which are nice. But don't get rid of your bathtub. Water is such a healing, again, also in biblical times and in ancient times, water was a healing remedy. Absolutely. We need to be submerged some, sometimes. There's a lot for stress. Yeah. What do you think about it? Because I don't remember you seeing in your book, too, about coffee enemas or enemas in general. I don't use those except for extremes. And this book is not about extremes. What I think about it, I think everything has a time and time and place. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. There was a, a natural oncology doctor here in New York. Unfortunately, he passed away a few years ago who frequently used coffee enemas in his regimen of of really helping people with pancreatic cancer and other things. And the thing that made sense to me, it was very interesting, was that, you know, it was originally, coffee animals were in the Merck Manual, you know, the, 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 the classic book on a lot of medical treatments, because essentially it was said to open up the bile ducts and let out, you know, the bile and other toxins. And to me, you know, again, when we see patients that are going through chemotherapy for, you know, various cancers, you realize some of the patients get so sick because... When the chemotherapy gets into the person's system and breaks up the tumors and the other cells, where is this all going? It's going through the liver, the filter, and when that is overburdened, you uh, you know you get so ill, and you know people are lucky to survive the treatment, let alone the cancer itself. You don't mention also in the book at all about vitamins. Do you not recommend them? Is there a reason? You really don't touch on that. You know, at all. again, it's so individual. If someone is under a lot of stress, you know, I may add some B-complex, but for the most part, I use herbs. I use herbs because I'm a believer that if we can get our organs working, if we can get our digestive process working and give good food and at the same time do baths to neutralize our ongoing slot of pollution, you know, because there are people that state that the food, because what they've done to it, even the organic, is is has less nutrients, and that's why you know there's some issues. So I was just curious. Even though I I tell patients typically also when they come in, I'm very selective when I choose supplements because and the way they take it. You know, for example, too, I like a lot of patients to do things whenever possible sublingual, because I have people come in with on thirty, forty supplements. It's just a, a bombardment to their stomach. 
I mean, I just picture all and these to pills. Their liver. Right, their pills just sitting in there, and it becomes almost like a medication. So uh, I was just curious because yes. you don't overindulgence of too many vitamins because it happens to maybe be good for you is not my idea. So if we can find what the root causes are and treat the root causes, and then give then give whatever is needed supportive, not to re- do replacement. If we need to stimulate an adrenal gland, then we can do that. And you also mentioned, too, that once people get through the intensive phase, I guess, of your programs, the 80-20 rule, the old Pareto rule, they call it, that essentially if you're good 80% of the time, the 20% patients can deviate. Because I think that's always the most threatening thing to a patient. Even when I'm, I do a lot of candidate work, I see a lot of candidate patients, and I think we help them a lot. But I know the one of the first questions out of everybody is, I'm not going to have to do this forever, am I? <laughs> and I say, mm-hmm. look, we'll be able to be have some flexibility. What I, your response should be, Dean, what your response should be, well, well, we're trying to make it feel like it doesn't seem like forever. Well, I always tell them, bring your lawyer so we can negotiate next time. <laughs> oh, gosh. I'm joking. <laughs> oh, they have to bring it down to a normal level because yeah. they're always going to have Canada. Which, so in that way, they're going to be that type. So... So they're the watery type, very watery, very emotional type, which is why it's so difficult to work with candida patients because they want, they, they want sugar, they want food, they want carbs, they want bread. And it's not only them wanting of their nature, but also all of those little fungus buds. Yeah, well, it's very hard, too, when you're walking down the street in New York City and you smell all the pizza as you're oh walking gosh. by. But um, oh, I, I've, I've been strong. I've been strong right? lately. Yeah, try. At 80%, you know, if it's a chronic uh, candida problem, I, I go 80% and find uh, what what the 20% that's least offensive because you know you suffer if you yes. if you get off of anyway. you know, I just got Before I just came on this podcast with you, I got a call from a patient I hadn't seen for like six months. And she was very upset. You know, she had done very nicely with me for a few months. And then, like she said, I went off the wagon. I mean, you know, the summertime came around. She was drinking a lot more alcohol. And then, you know, that that lets your guard down. And once you start doing that, then, you know, the sugary foods. And, you know, and just so patients and listeners also appreciate this, because what we keep on talking about, you know, why the sugar and everything, you know, people realize for diabetes it's bad for you. But, you know, I'll never forget once also Morgan Spurlock, who did the really interesting documentary supersized me about McDonald's where he ate McDonald's breakfast, lunch, and dinner, right, for a month. And this guy was relatively healthy before he started doing that. And at the end of the month, the doctor who was following him, taking blood tests, said, you got to stop whatever you're doing right now. He goes, his liver function tests were going off the charts. And I, you know, and today also we have, you know, we hear that term fatty liver, you know, as a leading cause of cirrhosis of, you know, you know, of the, the liver essentially failing, that to appreciate what you're putting in your mouth does make a difference. What I love about your book, too, and I'm going to sort of conclude on this, is that I guess taking from all of your Ayurvedic and different backgrounds that, uh, again, someone who reads your book once or twice is going to realize the foods are important and there's also all these other components that are important to healing, which... You know, I couldn't agree more. I, I think it's the type of thing that unfortunately doesn't get discussed in most medical visits these days. And so we need more healers like you doing this kind of work and, you know, with the organization. So, again, 
Dr. Linda, thank you so much for taking time to come on. I know patients want to see her. She comes to New York every, I believe, was it six weeks? You know, I we'll do. See, and we'll see patients and does phone consults. So, again, if you want more information, go to her site, Harmonic Healing, for more information. I'm also really super excited about Wait, it's our, Light Harmonics. Light Harmonics, sorry. Light Harmonics. Harmonic uh, Healing is the book, however. Right, that's right. And that, I would advise people to read the book. First. It is. It's, it's a good read. Very enjoyable. I'm also super excited about our upcoming guest next week, Dr. Lisa Sanders. She's the New York Times physician writer of the popular column Diagnosis, and we will be discussing a lot of her, the interesting cases that she's reported on. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please leave a review. And if there's a topic in medicine you are interested in, please let me know at my Facebook or Twitter handler at Dean Mitchell MD. Thank you all, and have a great day. Thank you for listening to The Smartest Doctor in the Room with host Dr. Dean Mitchell. You can continue this conversation on Instagram at Dean Mitchell MD, Facebook at Mitchell Medical Group, or at DeanMitchellMD.com.